Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're taking a short two-week break from our Ephesians series as Justin heals up. <clears throat> Last week we had Mike come and share with us and he diagrammed this beautiful picture of the patient and loving God that we serve and how he was just and right. We all love a good deal, right? My friend Isaiah Blair, who recently moved to South Carolina, as we were helping him move and pack and determine what was going and what wasn't, he would explain the deal he got on each item and why it was necessary for him to take it with him. And Michelle would just go, it stays. But he would go to great lengths to talk about how this was the deal he got and this was, this was how he found it and he saved this much money on it. And it was, in one case, a pool table that had never been unboxed in the seven years they lived in the house. And in another case, it was a piece of equipment that he was going to put spark plugs in and get running one day. Just deal after deal. So we love a good deal. We love it when we come out on top. And as I said, last week, Mike shared this beautiful picture of God's patience and his loving kindness and, and that he is a just God and that there was a problem and he answered that problem with Jesus. Now, this week, in our second week off from Ephesians, we're going to take a look at one of Jesus' parables. Now, I want you to hang with me, okay? Stay with me. We're going to get to where we're going. It's going to take a little bit. Christ's story here, let's read Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. I'll tell you, uh, I only found out Thursday that I was preaching this week. So I was saying at the coffee hour, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of what God has sh given me to share this week because I had such a short time to 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 prepare for it, that it, it, God really worked on me as I worked on this message. And so let's read the parable that Jesus is sharing about workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening come, came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came 
each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these, <clears throat> excuse me, saying these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, having borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would give amazing clarity as we look into this parable over 2,000 years after it was shared, that we would continue to glean from it, that we would continue to draw our love for you deeper. We would begin to understand you even more. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christ's story here sort of introduces the landowner who really didn't pay his workers proportionately to what we would say was fair. They performed a labor on his farm and he pays them. When the master is asked, is it unlawful for me to do what I wish? And he says, wait a minute. You agreed and I paid. Now, verse 8 calls him the owner of the vineyard, and it's a sizable estate if he's able to flood that vineyard with workers throughout the day in three-hour increments. And so, this is likely a man of great influence and great wealth. Those listening to Jesus as he told this in that context would be very familiar with vineyards. The whole vast covering of vineyards throughout Israel there's something in the story that would also stand out to them, would immediately catch their attention, which wouldn't have caught ours. Those listening would go, a denarius for a day, for a day laborer? That, that would have caught their attention. The owner clearly needed some help to harvest what was being grown on his vineyard. And now he goes into the marketplace, which was a common place for day laborers to gather. Uh, it's really no different today than in big cities where day laborers will gather and people will pull up and say, I need three, and three will get in the truck and they'll go to the vineyard or the orchard or wherever it is that they're going. This is still happening today in our time. But the interesting thing here is that the vineyard owner offers a denarius for a day's work. Now, a denarius in that day would have been the full-time day pay of a Roman soldier. Which, unlike our soldiers of today, were very handsomely paid. 
So a denarius is a good day's wage. It's upper middle class pay in that day. So a day laborer is being offered $35 an hour, let's just say. That's a decent temporary labor pay. So this would have caught the crowd's attention right away anyway. M- many of the in that crowd being day laborers themselves. Probably thinking when he said that the vineyard owner offered a denarius a day, they were probably thinking, man, I wish the last guy that hired me would have done a denarius for the day. So this would have automatically caught their attention. And so uncommon, minimally skilled labor would never receive a denarius a day for a full day's work, which in their culture was a 12-hour day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was the standard work day, folks, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., okay? Which is why we see, as Jesus is telling this story, he talks about the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Because there was an expectation that if you worked, you worked from 6 in the morning to 6 p.m. So that was the work day. And so for them to receive a denarius, man, that's a great pay. You've already perked my attention. I want to hear the rest of this story. The landowner here is clearly generous. Clearly giving more than what would even be perceived as reasonable. So this is a more than honorable wage to be offered. And so this morning crew gathers in the marketplace and he's there at 6 a.m. Right ready to hire and bring people to the vineyard. Now, this is my opinion. But he clearly was a respected member of the community. And I'm going to tell you why I feel that way in just a minute. But first, the first group of people that he hires, he tells them, it's a denarius for the day. Hey, they're ready to jump into that truck. So yeah, hire me, I will take it. But then the story changes. And when he goes back out the next time, Look what he says when he hires the next group. After three hours of work, he goes back and he looks again for some folks. Says he went again about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. Well, what was the same thing he did in verse 5? Well, we'll have to look at verse 3 to understand that. Verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the workplace and to them he said you go to into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you now this is why I think he's a respected member of the community because these guys don't know what they're going to get paid They're trusting in what he says is right. They could go and work the rest of the day. Now remember, this is only 9 o'clock in the morning. They're going to work till 6 p.m., which is our full work day now. They could work an entire day, and he could throw them a fairing. 
and say that's what's right. So there's a level of trust involved here in this group of workers. Now, the other thing could be at play here. It could be a bit of rumor mill. Hey, this was the guy that showed up and took the first five guys and told him he'd pay him a denarius for the day. He pays well. It's worth, worth getting on his team. But I like to lean on the idea that he's a respected member and they trust what he says. He's clearly, if he's a landowner and a vineyard owner, he's known throughout the community. So he hires this group not knowing what they're going to get. They don't have a clue what they're going to get paid. They just are believing that he's going to do what's right. And then in verse 5 it says, and he goes back out and he does it again at the sixth hour. And the ninth hour, he did the same thing, Matthew chapter 5 tells us. He continued to go back to the marketplace in regular intervals and all the way up till it was almost too late to hire a worker. There might not even be any workers standing by in the marketplace looking for work. But yet he goes back out at the 11th hour. And there is workers waiting to be hired. At 5 p.m., the workday ends in an hour. So this speaks to them being diligent to provide for their family and also hungry for something. They are hungry for something. These were persistent men who waited all day long, waiting, desperately desiring to take care of their families and fulfill a need that was on their plate. So when the owner stops by and hires them at the 11th hour, they must have been very thankful and they would have taken whatever was offered. The same offer. Remember, he went back out at, at, at noon and again at 3 and, and he did this in intervals and he offered the same thing. Go into the vineyard and I'll pay you what's right. You go too. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, the laborer is worthy of his, la of his wages. Paul tells uh, the church uh, that, that, that Timothy is, is developing. He sends a letter to Timothy, and, he, and I won't read it all, but he basically says, hey, if a believer doesn't provide for their family, they're, as bad as an, they're worse than an unbeliever. He tells them early in Timothy, and then he goes back and he says, he, he quotes Leviticus, and in Leviticus chapter 19, you all are very familiar with Leviticus in this church, uh, with, with the teaching that's been done in it. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. Pay a working man his wages. So this is all part of the culture. I'm going to work, and I'm going to get paid. I'm going to work, and I'm going to get paid. Man distorted that, by the way. And we're going to see that in a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 24, if you look at verses 14 and 15, it says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of your sojourners who are in your land and within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. 
Here, the grumbling that he didn't get paid isn't sin. It's the person withholding the money that is sinful. So the landowner is obviously honorable. He's faithful to the precepts of God's law. And when evening comes, the owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. But it's interesting that the order in which he pays them. What's interesting is the people that came at 5 o'clock and worked for an hour, they got paid first. He says, make those that were last first. Pay them first. So he pays them a denarius. And, And the guys at the back of the line who worked all day, they actually get a little excited. They're probably like, Whoo-hoo, Nelly! The guys that worked for an hour got a denarius. That means 12 days' pay is coming to us. Because surely this guy is fair. Surely. Because we judge fairness as being what's right. Then the next people receive their pay, the guys that worked for three hours. They got a denarius. Well, the guys in the back of the line, I get that half a day, you know, they didn't really work all that much. Their, prob- their hopes are probably still really high. And the end of the day comes and everybody gets their pay and the guys that work 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., walk up and they get their denarius. And what do they do? They do what all of us do. They grumble. They grumble. As a matter of fact, the, there's a commentator I was reading on this, and he expounded on this concept. He says, uh, the word translated grumbled in the Greek, and he says what the word is, and I can't pronounce it, but it starts with egg. And he says, this word actually is a word that the, the definition is understood in its pronunciation. You actually can't say the word without grumbling. So there, there's your, that's, the, that's the Greek translated. It evokes this sound and a grumble when it's muttered. And it's only ever used in complaint. All of our children speak this particular Greek language, by the way. They were murmuring. They were bellyaching at the pay that they had received. But then the landowner hears their complaint. And he responds. And he goes, you know what, you're right. I probably should throw you guys a couple more denarius. No. He replies to one of them. Look at verses 13 through 16. But he replied to one of them. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. I'm not allowed, am I not allowed to do what I chose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so that the last will be first and the first last? Jealousy. 
One version translates it as an envious eye. I don't know if any of you have that translation. But, but the, 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 the full day workers, they looked on this with an envious eye. They're jealous. They're angry. And if we're honest with ourselves, when someone gets more than us, our initial response isn't, oh, bless the Lord that they got blessed. It's, well, I did the same exact thing and I didn't get anything. I didn't get any more than that. I didn't get that much when I did the same thing. Or I didn't get anything at all when I did it. Almost anyone at the end of the pay line would probably have felt some sort of welling up of resentment if we're honest. Because we have to be honest that we are sinful creatures in need of a Savior. One who is right and just no matter what He does. Because if He does it, it's right. So we must not lose sight of the fact that the 6 a.m. crew was hired They were jumping for joy when they got in the back of his cart and were headed for the vineyard because they were getting a huge pay day. That was a big payday for a day worker of that day. They began the work day in high spirits, thrilled, excited. And more and more people started to come throughout the day. This is great. We're not even going to have to work as hard. This is awesome. But then... At the end of the day, all of their joy, all of their labor, all of their excitement throughout the day is diminished by sin. And it's their sin of jealousy. It's their sin of misunderstanding. It's their sin of not understanding how just and nice and proper and right the landowner is. So what changed their mood so dramatically? They thought they were owed something that they weren't. Many of us live our lives like that. They thought they were owed something that they weren't. They instantly felt mistreated. They began to grumble. Their attitude completely changed. They couldn't stand the thought that the worker that worked for an hour got the same pay that they got for all the labor that they had put in throughout the day. They even stated it to the landowner. And he corrects them and says, I am not being unfair. I am being completely right. Suddenly, their gratitude and their admiration for the landowner gets bitter. They have bitter resentment. These are men that are going home with more than a day's wage they would have ever made on any other vineyard. And yet now they're angry at this landowner think about it they're actually angry that they were paid more than their regular day's wage and they grumbled about it now this is a bold statement but it's a true statement and you can throw tomatoes at me later because there's plenty on the vines right now this kind of thinking reflects a failure for us to comprehend the true essence of the gospel and and the true nature of our god This kind of thinking is sinful and it needs to be flushed out of our lives. God's grace is perfectly fair. We often think, what is the first thing that comes to mind when someone brings up the topic of God's saving grace? Everybody immediately goes to the cross. 
which is the obvious place to go. Jesus bore our sin and gave us his righteousness. He gave us a day's wage we didn't deserve. We didn't earn it. There's nothing we could have done to earn what he gave us. Our service came to him after that fact. So it makes sense because the the cross represents the the climax of God's redemptive work. The resurrection seals the deal. But while the grace of God is the most clearly and fully manifest in the sacrifice of his son and the redemption of sinners, that's the full manifestation of his sacrifice and the beauty of it. Its expression is not isolated in the person and work of Jesus. Now, don't call me a heretic yet. It's not isolated there. God's grace is older than history itself. It reaches back before the foundation of the earth, Scripture tells us. It is not merely poured out at that one moment of salvation, but it has been orchestrated from before you were even in the womb. Your salvation has been orchestrated. Have we been listening in our Ephesians series? Do you remember back in chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chooses us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Where? Before Him. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. And then he goes on and he says, in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of what? His will. To the praise of His glorious Grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Theologians would refer to this precious truth as the doctrine of election. And just as those words escaped my tongue, many of your backbones began to shiver. It's been a major point of debate in the divisions that exist in the Big C Church. The truth about election is essential to understanding who God is, His plan of redemption, and His design for the church. But some who profess Christ's love, and I believe they have it, actually resent this doctrine because they scream of its unfairness. Their stance is, it's completely unfair. That God would choose some and not others. It's completely unfair. And therefore, our God is a fair God and He would never do that. That is their argument. Christians don't believe that God's sovereignty draws His elect to Christ. These Christians will say, this is a theological perspective that causes you to be lazy in your approach to evangelism. But it doesn't. It actually works the opposite way. Because if you, it, it, 
if you deny the doctrine of election, then evangelism is on your shoulders. You have to come up with crafty ways to draw and entice people into the church. You have to come up with all the things that will make it stick for them. But God, before the foundation of the world, chose you. He called you. He, as Romans 8, he, those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he, whom he called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. So, people who understand the doctrine of election don't stop evangelizing. We join the call and say, come to Jesus, the Savior of the world. I would argue that the doctrine of election shouldn't extinguish the church's evangelism. It should ignite it. Because now, you are that worker in the field. You are assisting the harvest and you will be paid handsomely for it. And it doesn't matter if somebody comes in on their deathbed last minute, they get the same wage. And that's the presence of Jesus. And this should bring rejoicing to us. We shouldn't be angry at someone who denies Him their whole life and then gets saved later. We should rejoice in that. This should be something we rejoice in. But even man has tried to distort some of those doctrines and tried to say, well, you'll get treated better in heaven. Don't worry about it. We are not Mormons. That is not the case. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord is at hand. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. You remember when Christ was on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, la makhtani. It is finished. My God, my God. What did he say? God had to turn his face from his own son because he could not look on our sin at that moment that Jesus took our transgressions on the cross. He had to look away. He had to allow that punishment to happen. And Jesus did that for us so that that would never happen to us. And then when God looks on us through our faith and belief, He sees His Son. That great exchange. Those who worry more about the works and the ways, and the schemes, that burden is on them. Salvation is of the Lord. Go into the vineyard and work and do your day's wage. And it doesn't matter at what point throughout the day that someone arrives on scene, the reward is the same. This is the beautiful picture. I think oftentimes, and I've said this before, oftentimes people look at the doctrine of election and they say, oh, it's just so unfair because God's just crossing His arms. He's going, you can come and you can come, but you can't come and you can't come. 
because their image is that everybody is running towards God and they're excited and they want to join God. And that's not the reality. If, if you even go back to our story in, in Matthew 20, he had to go into the marketplace to find the workers. They weren't standing at the gate of the vineyard. They were just gathered where they thought they could find something. Is that not a description of our world? There are people gathering in places where they think they can find something. And then the laborer, I mean, and then the, 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 the vineyard owner comes up and says, why are you standing here idle all day? Come with me to my vineyard. You're looking for something that you're not going to fill here. So we need to hold the doctrine of election close to our hearts. And can we stop calling it Calvinism? John Calvin didn't come up with this. He read it in the Bible. Stop giving him credit for it. Understanding God's sovereign grace is the heart of what the church is about. So we don't have to have people come into the church and then we say, all right, change your clothes. Stop listening to that radio station. Stop going to that place. That's not what this is about. Come and be a laborer. And we will all be paid at the end. And it will be glorious. It will be more than we could even imagine. The beauty of the, the, beauty of the, 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 the crew that worked from the beginning to the end, they worked all day excited. But it was at the end that they lost their joy because of their sin. But the crew that worked incrementally throughout the day, added on, added on, added on, they had a sense of worry about them, even as to, I wonder if I'm actually going to get paid a good wage. Uh, uh, uh. Because their sin manifest on the front end in their mistrust of the landowner. And we are all in one of those categories. We're either operating right now in a mistrust of the creator, a little bit, I'm still here and I'm still doing this thing, but I'm a little worried that you're actually going to do what you say. Or we are plowing through, and when it gets to the end, we better be happy and joyful. You realize that that landowner, he had plenty of money. He had plenty of, he could have been greedy. He could have said, I want to make more on these grapes than I can by paying all these people this money. But the profit to him was the profit of those people. How many landowners go into the marketplace did, did he not mention a foreman? Did he not mention a foreman in the story? Couldn't he have sent the foreman down to the marketplace? He didn't send the foreman to the marketplace. He went to the marketplace because he wanted to see people who had a need have their need met, and he wanted to see it firsthand because he loved them. So he didn't send the foreman down to the marketplace. He got on the cart, and he got down there where they were, and invited them into the vineyard. Did you notice that in the story, some he said, go into the vineyard. He didn't even ask them if they wanted to. What? He didn't. It was clear that you have, you have assembled here because you are in need of something. 
Go into my vineyard and I'll pay you what is right. It was a command. He called them into the vineyard. And they went. And the Bible says, and they went. That's me. He came to me and I was wandering in the world and he said, go with me. All this stuff you've been looking for isn't me. That's not the job you got. This is the job you got. Now go. That's how I became a Christian. I believed him. And I went. So in closing, I have this question that ponders. Everyone that talks about the doctrine of election, this is the question that they ponder. Why doesn't God save everyone? This is the question. I told you this is one you're going to have to bear with me on today. Why doesn't God save everyone? He does. He saves everyone that he has elected. Why doesn't God save everyone? You're dodging my question, Dan. Why doesn't God save everyone? Well, he's certainly not obligated to show mercy to those that he chooses not to. That's what makes grace gracious. Now, consider this as a person who has worked and continues to work and build things. I get a beautiful slab off of a big old oak tree and I run it through the planer and it planes off a little bit of stuff and the planer takes off wood right I actually don't pick that wood up and put it back on top of there because this piece has a purpose those pieces don't. And I am the crafter and the master. And it's okay. So why doesn't God save everyone? I'll answer that question again. We don't know that he doesn't. We don't know who is the elect. And that is why we work in the field. And that is why we continue to do Ultimately, God is the one who decides and determines. And if you are feeling some sort of way right now, it's because you're being called by God. That is the voice of God calling you. If you're angry about what you're hearing, or if you're, if you're convicted about what it is, God is calling you. He's calling you to salvation. He is giving you the faith to believe in Him. This is really no different than other doctrines. We just like to pick on the doctrine of election in Christianity. This is no different than the doctrine of eternal punishment. It's another one nobody likes to hear about. Nobody likes to hear about the, the idea that, that those who don't believe, those who are vessels of destruction, will send, spend an eternity separated from Him. They don't like that, so they, they make it easier. Well, God just saves everybody. Or the doctrine of the Trinity. This miraculous birth. That's ah, not really possible. Here's what happened. And they try and give some scientific understanding of why. The Creator owes nothing to the creature. Nothing. 
anything that we receive from God is His mercy. God does exactly what He wants, when He wants, and He does it because He is good and because He is God. There's a famous Puritan, and I'll close here in just a second with his quote. William Perkins was a famous Puritan in the 1600s, and he said, we must not think that God does a thing. He said doth, but I'm going to say does. Does a thing because it is good and right. But rather, the thing is good and right because God willed it and has done it. This is, a, this is a huge shift in our understanding. Now the final argument for the doctrine of election. How did we get to the doctrine of election from Matthew 20? This is how. I wouldn't do it that way. If I was God, I would save everybody. You're a liar. No, you wouldn't. Show me your Thanksgiving table. No, you wouldn't. Show me your Facebook page. Are you friends with all 7.5 billion people on the planet? No. You wouldn't save everybody. Stop lying to yourself and telling yourself that you would do that. I did that for years as I struggled against this doctrine because I would make a better God. Guess what? That's the fall, y'all. That's, that's initial sin right there. Ah, we won't really die. God's not really going to stick to his word. I'll doubt the landowner. I would save everyone if I was God. No, you wouldn't. The evidence is in your life right now. There's people you won't talk to. There's people you won't have anything to do with. So don't tell me that you would save everybody because you wouldn't. Today, you may be feeling some sort of way. You're pricked at the heart. You're mad at me. The, the, the lunch invitation is off the table. This means God's working on you, and I'm satisfied. Unbeliever, surrender today to the call of salvation that has been permeating throughout your ears your entire existence up to today. God has been calling you, and you have seen some poor examples of his people trying to do what they think is right. Maybe they've hounded you about works and maybe they've told you you got to do this in order to be accepted by God and maybe they've maybe you went to a church that tried to you know change the way you dress and change maybe you've had bad experiences with his bride. Doesn't mean that the husbandman is bad. Today believer surrender to the call of salvation. Today, I mean unbeliever, surrender to the call of salvation. And today, believer, don't take it from me. Take it from the Word of God. If you struggle with the doctrine of election, then it's smothered throughout Scripture. So dig into it. But be sure you put yourself aside because you would not make a better God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you are just and holy and right. May we praise you. Even if we don't understand some of the things that you do. May we just 
believe that you are just and right and that what, as our dear Puritan brother, Mr. Perkins, said 400 years ago, may we understand that you don't do things because they're good. Whatever you do is good. And so, Lord, I just love you. And I just want people to hear your call in their life and answer it because there is something better for them when they walk in your statutes and in your ways. And I just ask that you would bless struggling families, work on convicted hearts, for it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.